0: Well, let's take our Bibles tonight and turn to Colossians chapter three. Colossians chapter three, and this is a the second part two message of the day. So this morning I got to preach, uh, faith, focusing on the future part two, and this one's going to be the Christian wardrobe part two. Uh, Colossians chapter three and verse number twelve through number fourteen, and if you would join me in standing for the reading of god's word i would greatly appreciate that colossians chapter number 3 verses just 12 through 14 the bible says put on therefore as the elect of god holy and beloved bowels of mercies kindness humbleness of mind meekness long suffering forbearing one another and forgiving one another If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Lord, we thank you for your holy word of God. We thank you for this passage of scripture that gives us pretty good instruction on how to live the Christian life. And God, I pray you would help us to take heed to these truths tonight. And uh, I pray, Lord, you'd help us all to be good hearers, but then good doers of the Word. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So, as I said, this is part two of this message called The Christian Wardrobe. And Paul here in this passage is using... Uh, Clothing here is an illustration to help us understand the the change that should be taking place in our life now that we are believers, now that we are risen with Christ. And uh, last time we studied verses 8 down through verse number 11, and we were challenged in that passage to put off the grave clothes of the old man, knowing that as believers we are risen with Christ and have no need of the grave clothes any longer. We are to put off the grave clothes of anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, and lying is what we were called to put off uh, in that last passage. But now tonight we're going to come to the instruction about what we are to put on. But before we get to the description of the wardrobe of the new man, I want us to see first of all tonight as we make our way through this passage, uh, our election. I want us to look at Our election. In verse number 12, uh, Paul says this Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. Now, whenever you see the word elect, and it is used several times, in fact, 14 times in the New Testament, to describe a person who has been saved by the grace of God. And uh, don't get too nervous tonight. Um, I know that the, uh, the word election and, and all of that is a controversial topic, or it can be. Uh, but basically, election refers to the fact that those who are saved have been chosen by God in Christ before the foundation of the world. Uh, that is a very clear statement in, uh, in Ephesians chapter number 1. If you just flip back a couple pages and you can see that. Uh, chapter 1 and verse number 4, "...according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love." And uh, flipping back to Colossians chapter 3, um, we are election is definitely a scriptural and biblical concept. The scripture, without a doubt, teaches that God in His sovereignty has chosen men to be saved. Now, I will just say this comment here, too. The Bible definitely does not teach that God has chosen men to hell. And uh, that is uh, some, what some people do is they talk, they talk about the election of God, and then they say, and that means that God has chosen, therefore, uh, people to be damned and go to a place called hell. No, um, while God does know, He doesn't choose people to go to hell. The Bible definitely does teach that uh, He has chosen men to be saved, but the Bible also teaches that man has a responsibility to choose to place their faith in Christ. The same Bible that says that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father is the same Bible that also says, "...whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life." See, it's not one or the other, it's both. Uh, John Morin, in his book, Decision-Making and the Will of God, said it this way, and I like like his explanation. He said, I I read the many teachings of the Bible regarding God's election, predestination, His chosen, and, and so on. I read also the many teachings regarding whosoever will may come and urging people to exercise their responsibility as human beings. These seeming contradictions cannot be reconciled by the puny human mind. Uh, Now, I know everybody wants to feel like they can understand everything about the the tension between God's sovereignty and and, and the free will of man, but but really, uh, it's beyond what we can really kind of grasp. And so he said, uh, John Moran continues, he says, with childlike faith, I cling to both ropes and I've got... Uh, two ropes here. He, he says, I cling to both ropes fully confident that in eternity I will see that both strands of truth are, after all, of one piece. And this is a little tangled tonight, but it's actually one rope. And uh, that's the deal. Sovereignty and the election of God, yes, I'm holding on to that. But also we need to hold on to the uh, responsibility of man to believe and to place their faith in Christ. Um, so, but it's one rope. Do you see? And uh, D.L. Moody simplified this complicated concept this way the elect are the whosoever wills, and the non elect are the whosoever won't. <laughs> uh, one of the best explanations, though, of this concept I heard was that the door to heaven has a sign that says, Whosoever will, let him come. And then, when you get on the other side of the door and you look, there's another sign that says, "I have chosen you from the foundation of the world, from the the, before the foundation of the world." So, election here—we are elect as believers, and in our election, we are a couple things here. He says, verse twelve: "Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved." These two words. In our election, we are holy; we are set apart. Now, I was thinking about uh, when I got married to my wife 22 years ago, and I'm glad we got married in 2000, so it's easy to remember how many years we've been married. <laughs> that was uh, one of my finer moments. Um, anyway, in that moment, what my wife and I were doing, we were committing in that moment that I'm going to separate from all others Unto her exclusively, like I belong to her exclusively, and no one else. and And salvation is very much the same way. It sets us apart exclusively for Jesus Christ. When it talks about holy, yes, we are holy in our position, but also it, we should be holy in our practice as well. So it would be a pretty terrible thing, though, if uh, you go to a wedding and If at the end of the wedding, the groom ran off with the maid of honor. That would kind of put a damper on things, wouldn't it? It would kind of be uh, something you'd never forget. Um, It would be truly awful if that happened. But, But if you think about it, it's very similar to when a Christian decides who has been saved, who is elect, who decides that they're going to live for the world in the flesh. They're really, in many sense, committing spiritual adultery. And uh, and 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 see, we we as believers are supposed to be set apart exclusively for the Lord Jesus Christ. In our election here, he says we are holy, and then he says we are also beloved. In Ephesians. Um, two in verse number four the Bible says but God who is rich in mercy for his great love we just sung about that. that was the first song we sang about it's just like his great love for his great love wherewith he loved us see you and I are the object of his great love and he loves us in spite of how unlovable we may be and when you really take a honest look at our lives I mean in our condition as sinners, we're we're not worthy of His love, and yet He loves us. Wherewith uh, it says, "For His great love, wherewith He loved us," and uh, we are beloved. and And so here we are, because of all of our election here. Then we go into our next thought here, and not only our election, our expectation. Verse number 12, put on, therefore, because you are elect of God, because you are holy and separated unto Christ exclusively, and you are so loved by Him, because of all of that truth, here's what now you need to put on. We are expected to put on some things. And it's not just that we should get rid of the grave clothes. And uh, I have here tonight, um, hang on. Okay, I have here some grave clothes. Now, I was, I was hoping for a different team. Okay, this is the, this is the Dallas Stars, okay? Uh, last year, uh, they got beat in the first round of the playoffs. So, grave clothes. Uh, this, this, this illustration would work better if it was a Green Bay Packers jacket, so maybe in your mind, use that as an illustration. Okay, <laughs> um, but, but here's the deal, okay, um, when, we're, when we're saved, we need to take off the grave clothes because we no longer have them, why? Because we're risen with Christ, and we, are, we identify with Him as the resurrected Savior, and He know, has no need for the grave clothes anymore, and neither do we, so we need to take them off, but wait a minute... Uh, So we have this off, but we need to put something else on to replace that. We're to put on some things. We're to put on, again, he's using the illustration of clothing here. We're to put on, not the grave clothes, but we're to replace them with grace clothes. The wardrobe of the new man. We're to put on the wardrobe of the new man. See, when Jesus rose from the dead, he put off those grave clothes. But then we know... Right? He had clothing on afterwards. Mary Magdalene was the first one to see the risen Savior. Remember, she assumed that he was the gardener. He had the appearance of a gardener. He looked like it because he had perhaps clothing that was similar to what the gardener would wear. So I got to wondering this week about where did Jesus get his clothing afterwards? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. I started thinking about it and started looking, looking it up, and, and uh, there's nothing very clear in the scriptures, but there are a couple of theories to consider. I'll just throw them out for you, uh, just, to, just to throw it out there for you. Uh, one, 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 somebody thought that maybe he got the clothing from the shed nearby where the real gardener kept his tools and garden clothes, and that's a possible option. Another possible option is when the young man in the book of Mark left the linen cloth in his frenzied attempt to escape from the grasp of the armed men there in the Garden of Gethsemane, that Jesus later found that linen cloth that he left and used that to cover himself. Um, that's possible. It also could be that God supernaturally clothed him uh, without the need of having to find it anywhere else. That when he came, as, when he rose from the grave, he already had clothing on. Um, Or it could be something else that nobody really knows. If the Lord really wanted us to know, He would have put it in the Scriptures. It's just kind of an interesting thought. But uh, at any rate, we do know that He had clothing on. If you go to Revelation chapter 1 very quickly, there's nothing conclusive about where He got His clothing, but we do know that He was no longer wearing the grave clothes, but now was wearing new clothing. Revelation 1 in verse number 13. It says, in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, notice this, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and gird about the paps with a golden girdle. So, somewhere along the line, Jesus received new clothing. We can flip back to Colossians chapter 3. I just want you to see that. There was a replacement. He had grave clothes. He no longer needed them because he was in his resurrected form. Now he has new clothes. And that ought to be the case for each and every one of us, right? As believers, uh, because we are risen with Christ, we no longer need those grave clothes anymore. Now we need to put on the clothes of the new man, the grace clothes. So if the risen Savior had replaced the grave clothes with a new wardrobe, then as a result, we who are risen with Christ off with the old, on with the new. So what exactly do these grace clothes look like? And We're going to take a moment to go through each of these descriptions here very briefly. Uh, Verse number 12 tells us what these grace clothes look like. like. Verse 12 says, Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved. And here's the first thing that we are to put on. Bowels of mercy or mercy. Now the word bowels of mercy... um, in, in, in that day, everybody thought that the emotions came from the, your intestines. Uh, maybe, maybe, you know, when, when you're nervous about something and you've got butterflies in your stomach. But they, that's where they thought that the seed of the emotions lie, lied in your intestines. Uh, we, we, we know it to be really in our hearts. But, but the point isn't really the location, okay? The point is mercy, that we have a heart of mercy towards others. We have a heart of compassion towards others. Have a constant, having a constant caring attitude towards one another to where we're not just thinking about me and all of my needs, but I have a, a mercy and I'm compassionate about the needs that you're going through. This is the heart that really understands what the other person is uh, feeling and, and uh, that, that, that other person is just that, a person with feelings and, and hearts and, and emotions. And, and you understand that and you want to be there. Jude says, uh, and some having compassion making a difference. We're to put on mercy. Now, aren't you glad tonight that Jesus had compassion and mercy upon us? Uh, when he saw the multitudes, the Bible says he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. So we're to put on mercy, compassionate spirit, a compassionate heart towards those around us. That's part of the grace clothes, putting on mercy. Okay, the next one, he says, put on kindness. Verse 12, put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bows of mercies, kindness is the next one he mentions. Ephesians 432 also mentions that we are uh, this idea of kindness where it says, And be ye kind one to another. I think about in the Old Testament when David, as the king, showed kindness, great kindness, to uh, Mephibosheth, this lame man who was dropped when he was five years old by his nurse. Remember that? and he was from the family of Saul and Saul's family was basically discarded because of Saul's disobedience and sin and and yet David as the king decided to because of Jonathan's his relationship with Jonathan show great kindness to Mephibosheth and and calls Mephibosheth to the king's palace and and and, and there he allows Mephibosheth to sit at his table and and to like every day for the rest of his life, be there at the king's table and gets to eat the king's food. I mean, tremendous kindness. But that's just an illustration, really, of God's greater kindness to all of us, who we are very much all like Mephibosheth, can't get to the, God's, to the king's table on our own. And yet he invites us to come and to uh, be in his presence, not just for the rest of his life, but for eternity. And so, really, here's a good question. Why are we to put on kindness? Because God ultimately first showed kindness to us. Titus chapter 3, in verse number 3, Paul says this, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Okay, so, if somebody was... Foolish, disobedient, deceiving you, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice, envy, hateful and hating, hating you uh, and hating other people. How would you react to that? Oh, let's be kind to them. That's not really how in our natural flesh want to treat others who are acting that way. But that is exactly how God treated us because the next verse says, after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. So when people were disobedient, hateful, do we really want to treat them with kindness? No. That's how the Lord treated us in our sinful condition. Now, obviously, I'm not saying tonight that we need to allow people to walk all over us and abuse us. But instead of treating people like they deserve, the encouragement here is to put on kindness. And this is the wardrobe that we're supposed to have. Because we are risen with Christ, we now need to put on these things. The, 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 the wardrobe of the new man, which is kindness. The next one, uh, thirdly here, we're to put on humility. In verse 12, uh, Paul says it this way, Humbleness of mind. In Paul's day, the worldly culture of that day did not admire humility at all. They thought it was absolute weakness. Instead, they valued pride and domination. But the Bible tells us and calls us to a different standard, doesn't it? Esteeming others better than yourself. Taking the back seat, thinking of others before yourself. Uh, We said in our Sunday school class, we were were reminded of the uh, acronym JOY, J-O-Y. Jesus, other, others, and then you. And when you have that in the right priority, in the right order, uh, then everything does work, and there is tremendous joy. But when it gets backwards, or we, we even said, a lot of times what happens is we go, it, it's, it's Moj, me, others, and then Jesus, or, or really it's just, hmm, at that point, because then it's all about me, um, and it's just, it's no bueno. So uh, let's put on humility and not think so much of ourselves. And once again, the Lord Jesus is our example in this in Philippians chapter number two. The the wonderful passage, just a few pages back in your Bible, if you'd like to turn there, in verse number five. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So here Jesus, when he came to this earth, and we spoke about it a little bit this morning, when he first came to this earth, he came in very, uh, very humble means. He came and was born in Bethlehem's manger without anything. He humbled himself to come to this earth so that he could be our sacrifice. And so, when we put on humility, we're putting on the mind of Christ, because He had a mind of humility. And uh, I know we kind of like to get our, our way done, and we like to get you know um, our desires accomplished and fulfilled, and, and yet we are called here in the Scriptures to put on humility, where it's not about me, it's not about my way, it's about the glory of God. And being a blessing to others. So, put on humility. Second, or or not second, fourth. I got my numbers all mixed up here. Uh, Put on meekness. Put on meekness. Verse number 12 mentions meekness as well. Now, meekness is power under control. It's not weakness. It's power under control. It gives the idea of a wild horse that has been tamed with tremendous power but has it harnessed. One picture I get in my mind is a, of, of meekness is a father having a tea party with his little daughter and I've had a few of those in my day. And yes, I put my pinky out when I lifted the, uh, the teacup to my mouth. Okay. See, meekness has also been defined as being weak to defend one's own opinions, but strong to defend God and His Word. Weak to promote self, but strong to promote God and His Word. Weak toward fulfilling one's own will, but strong towards doing the will of God. Weak for personal views, but strong for God's truth. It's a great definition. A truly humble and meek man is hard to find, and yet God delights to honor such selfless people. Booker T. Washington, the renowned black educator, was an outstanding example of being meek. Shortly after he took over the presidency of Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, he was walking in an exclusive section of town where he was stopped by a wealthy white woman. Not knowing the famous Mr. Washington by sight, she asked if he would like to earn a few dollars by chopping wood for her. Because he had no pressing business at the moment, Professor Washington smiled, rolled up his sleeves, and proceeded to do the humble chore she had requested. When when he was finished, he carried the logs into the house and stacked them by the fireplace. A little girl recognized him and later revealed his identity to the lady. The next morning, the embarrassed woman went to go see Mr. Washington in his office at the the Institute and apologized profusely. Oh, it's perfectly all right, madam, he replied. Occasionally, I enjoy a little manual labor. Besides, it's always a delight to do something for a friend. She shook his hand warmly and assured him that his meek and gracious attitude had endeared him and his work to her heart. Not long afterwards, she showed her admiration by persuading some wealthy acquaintances to join her in donating thousands of dollars in that time to the Institute. See, true meekness, though, is actually best seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was submissive. He never resisted or disputed the will of God. His absolute trust in the Father enabled him to show compassion, courage, and self-sacrifice, even the most hostile situation. He proved his meekness in his arrival to earth. He came in the form of a baby in Bethlehem's manger. He proved it when he submitted to his parents there in Jerusalem. And as he dealt with people, the woman at the well, the woman taken in adultery, meekness. And as Jesus made his way into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, how did he enter? In an elaborate parade with pomp and circumstance? No, he came riding upon a donkey. Not exactly this glorious arrival. So instead of making his entrance with great glory and power, he could have and deserved, I mean, because he is, after all, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the great God of heaven. He is the line of the tribe of Judah. He is the one who is high and lifted up. But instead, he came in a spirit of meekness and humility. And we're instructed here to put on that same... Article of clothing in our lives, meekness. What's what's mentioned next? Long suffering. We're to put on long suffering, which which basically means a long temper, where it takes a long time for you to explode. We talked about this last time, a couple weeks ago. And this is the opposite from wrath in verse number eight where we're called to put off all these anger, wrath, and wrath is the one where we'll, this is the explosion. When we get so angry, we explode, and everybody knows it. And the, and the collateral damage is, is, is huge. Long-suffering is the opposite of that, where it's like this long fuse. And, and the longer we're saved, the longer that fuse ought to become. How, how long is your fuse? Uh, someone once wrote this, Patience is a virtue. Possess it if you can. Found seldom in a woman, never in a man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know we laugh at that, and, and that's, that's clever, but here's the deal. It ought to be found in all of us, because we ought to be putting it on. As believers because of our election because of our uh, the fact that we're saved and we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus was long-suffering to us he's long suffering to us word not willing that any should perish aren't you thankful for his long-suffering to you how many times did you have to hear the gospel before you responded I know maybe there's probably a few, maybe the first time, but most of us had to hear it multiple times, and that's God's long-suffering to us. So, he's not asking us to do something he's not willing to be. He's the ultimate example of being long-suffering. So, we're to put on long-suffering. Uh, sixthly here, a couple more. Put on forbearance. Put on forbearance. In verse number... Uh, 13, this is where this one is found forbearing one another. How many of you have ever heard the phrase when somebody's like um, asking you to wait and, and just say, please bear with me? Most of us are familiar with that expression. Thanks for bearing with us, someone might say. Um, so. When it comes to forbearance in one another, this is bearing with one another's idiosyncrasies, their quirks, their different personalities. Hopefully, your spouse doesn't have multiple personalities. Um, But, you know, dealing with their, their personality, dealing with and just bearing with those. I remember... Um, I'll just share this. Um, I've shared it in our couples class. It's a little. I hope it's not too crass for a public, uh, for for a public service. But uh, when we were first married, okay, I grew up with just my brother. I didn't have any sisters, and so this, this the toilet seat, okay, that that whole thing, I didn't I didn't really ever think through. I didn't really think it was a thing. I mean, you just you just left it up. Because, I mean, we were just trying to consider one another, my brother and I were. And so, anyway, we're married, and, and, and my wife is trying to help me with, uh, okay, well, now that you're living with a woman, you now need to consider her. And so, I'm like, okay, well, one day, um, we're, we're, we're in our condo, and I'm in the living room, just kind of standing there waiting for her, and she's like, I'm going to go use the restroom. And she, she goes in there, closes the door. And then I hear this very loud noise. She lowers the toilet seat very loudly so that somebody in the house can hear me. And I, I'm just standing there and I hear this, and I'm like, whoa, what's that? It really kind of made me jump. And I'm like, oh, no, I forgot to, turn, to, to lower that. I'm, oh, man. And so she comes out, and she's got a big smile on her face, like, um, maybe you'll learn now, you know? <laughs> well, okay, so, so lest you think I'm the only one, uh, when we were married, we thought, okay, well, now we can share toothpaste. Like, this is going to be great, because, you know, we can save money, and, you know, we, we can just share toothpaste. I mean, we're married. We get to share everything. We get to share our lives together, It's so wonderful. We could share toothpaste. But then, this woman, she takes the toothpaste from the middle of the tube and squeezes it. I mean, what kind of monster does that? That's just awful. I mean, I very carefully and meticulously roll it from the end as I move through the end that the toothpaste she just goes and then messes up my rolls that I've made I'm like are you serious so we now use two different (laughs) toothpaste that's how we solve that one it's worth the extra money on that But. And I'm, I'm, I'm being silly and giving a couple silly examples, but there's, there's other things that I'm sure that we've had to bear with one another throughout our marriage. She's had to bear with a lot more than I've had to bear. Um, no amens necessary right there, okay? Thank you. <laughs> but look, we need to do that at home. We need to do that here at church. Not everybody's going to be exactly the way you are. We need to bear with one another. So... I would encourage you, as your pastor, to please bear with me because I'm not perfect. I'm human as they come. And I want to bear with you knowing that you're also human. And I hope that we'll look across the room and see people and bear with one another and put on this forbearance. All right, one more here that's mentioned in verse number uh, 13. He says, And put on forgiving, forgiveness, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. But he goes on and continues this thought of forgiveness. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And by the way, Paul uses Jesus as our example here again. We are to forgive as He has forgiven us. And when He was on that cross and He was completely innocent, He did absolutely nothing wrong. He was perfectly sinless. And He's there on the cross and He's been mistreated. He's been beaten. He's been mocked. And He's been nailed to a cross. And what is His response? Father, destroy them because I'm innocent probably what my my response would have been, but I'm thankful that I wasn't the one who had to be the Savior. Um, But because Jesus, who is the Savior, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He chose to forgive, even though it wasn't asked of him. I think I was reading in one of the commentaries this week, as I was studying for this, that D.L. Moody, in one of his sermons... Uh, Just kind of said, you know, I I, I can almost picture Jesus going to Peter and saying, Hey, why don't you go find the person who plucked my beard and go say, Jesus forgives you. Why don't you go find the soldiers who pounded the nails in my hands and feet and and say that they're forgiven, that I, I forgive them. Uh, Why don't you go find the one who uh, had the privilege of putting the cat of nine tails upon me and and go find the person who put the crown of thorns on my skull and and I want you to go tell them that I I want to forgive them. Forgiveness, um, I don't really have time to go into it, um, but forgiveness is a huge necessity within the Christian life. Because we're all going to hurt each other. Maybe on purpose, probably not on purpose, but it happens. And that's why he says in verse 13 if you notice this, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Let's not let little things cause division at home, here at church, in the neighborhoods especially with your neighbors who know you're a Christian and go to Cornerstone Baptist Church. Let's choose forgiveness. Let's put this on. This is part of the grace close. Ephesians 4 and verse 32, Paul mentions in a parallel passage here, he says, Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. He's forgiven us, and offer this forgiveness even without us coming to say sorry. A lot of times we'll say, well, I'll forgive them as long as they start, if they come to me and apologize and grovel on their knees and beg for forgiveness, please forgive me, then we might go, okay, well, maybe now I will forgive. Or, hey, as long as I really think they are sincere and and I want to see some, some improvement and some change in life, then I'll forgive. That's not the way God forgave us, is it? He offered us forgiveness before any of those things. And that's how we're to forgive those around us. So put on forgiveness. And Jesus, of course, is our example. By the way, He's our example in all of these. And, and basically, what He's saying is put on Christ. <laughs> we, we need to put on the clothing that Christ wore. So that's our expectation. And then number three, and let me wrap this up here with our emphasis. Verse number 14, and above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Above all these things. This is the emphasis. This is the most important virtue. This, this charity, this love acts as a girdle that ties all the other virtues together. It is entirely possible to manifest some of the aspects we've already talked about in this message without really having love in our heart. It really is possible. We can be kind to somebody. We can be humble. We can be meek and long-suffering. But our motive may not be love. We might do it to just simply avoid conflict and uncomfortable situations. We might do it to look good to others so that everybody thinks we're really spiritual. We might do it just so that because, you know, after all, you reap what you sow, and I want people to be kind to me. I want people to be meek to me and long-suffering to me, so I'm going to do that to them. And not necessarily horrible reasons, except for the to look good to others. That's a, pride, that's a prideful motive for sure. But motive really does matter. And the motive that should propel us to put on mercy and kindness and humility and meekness and long-suffering for and forgiveness ought to be love. Love for God and love for others. This is the bond that really ties everything together. And we're to put on love. Why? Well, in verse number 12, it says there, Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and, what's that next word? Let's look at verse number 12. We're not done just yet. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. We're to put on love because we are beloved. We're to love because we are loved. The Apostle John said it this way in 1 John 4, 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, and he did, we ought also to love one another. The Lord Jesus said it this way in John 13, 34, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. So, friend, when I mention that we are beloved, that should then go, well, I have been loved, and I didn't deserve God's love, so I should freely give love to those around me, who, maybe in my fleshly mind, don't deserve it. Because the truth is, none of us deserve it. We are to love because we are so loved. The Gnostics there in Colossae really thought that knowledge itself was the bond of perfectness. In verse number fourteen, above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. They thought that knowledge was the bond of perfectness, but Paul says, "No, love is the bond of perfectness. Love is the first fruit mentioned. It is the, fir- the first fruit mentioned in the fruit of the spirit?" And all others follow that one. Love, joy, peace. But love is mentioned first. And so here in verse number 14, that's the emphasis. Above all these things, put on charity. Charity. Now, remember the context of this book. Paul is writing to a church family. This wardrobe change should indeed be evident within the church family. We should indeed put on mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, forbearance, forgiveness, and most of all, charity. And this is, should be the case in how we talk to each other here at Cornerstone Baptist Church. With mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, forbearance, forgiveness, and charity. This is, how we, this is how we should talk to each other. And by the way, this is all, also how we should talk about each other to others. With mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, forbearance, forgiveness, and charity. This should also be the case at home within our immediate family. This should be evident work in the community as we deal with others in business. What kind of wardrobe are people seeing in your life? The grave clothes or the grace clothes? So the Christian wardrobe, there are things we are called to put off. And there are things we are called to put on. What is it that you are wearing, the grave clothes or the clothes of the resurrected life that identifies with the risen Savior? So tonight, if you still need to put off the grave clothes, please do so. And let's replace them with the grace clothes of the fruit of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for time together tonight to look at the second part of the Christian wardrobe. It's not just about removing the grave clothes that we no longer need to wear because we are risen with Christ. But now we now need to put on the grace clothes of the risen Savior, of the new man. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would make a decision tonight to put on the right clothing, spiritually speaking. Help these things to truly be evident in each and every every one of our lives. Here at church, And at home, at work, everywhere we go, Lord, I pray that we would have the grace clothes on.